Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Before we get going today, I just want to share with you guys what's going on with us. So recently, we just released our new school. It's called Expat International School of Freedom and Entrepreneurship. I actually partnered with a previous guest on the podcast. His name is Michael Strong. He was on episode 115 of the podcast, and we became fast friends. I really love the conversation that we had together, and we started talking on a regular basis and decided to actually build an online school together. So if you guys have been following me for any length of time, then you probably know quite a bit of about my pretty crummy experience going through school when I was a child. And you know what? I don't want any other kids to go through something like that. So education is a big passion of mine. I think that if you see any of the episodes over the last five years where we talk about education, I think that really comes through. So if you have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or even friends or neighbors who you think might benefit from this, I want you guys to go to expatschool.io .io to find out more information. The school is going to be completely virtual. It is not just some course online or watch a couple of videos or something. No, these are actual classes. We have a maximum of 15 kids per each class. Now think, when I grew up in Canada, we had 32 children in a class. I was talking to my friends the other day. Their kid was an expat in Thailand and they had 42 children per class. How are you ever expected to learn? How is your child expected to learn in an environment like that? It's just not reasonable to expect. Really, all that ends up happening is the teacher is managing the kids the whole time. There's no teaching, there's no dialogue, and it doesn't make for a very good experience. So we're, we're looking to fix that as well as many other things in the expat space. So you guys can check it out at expatschool.io. We have programs that are currently up and running. We ran a beta program and now we're doing continual intake. So if you have kids or grandkids or nieces, nephews, et cetera, et cetera, and then they can actually join now. All you're gonna do is go to the website, read about it, read about the programs and what we have going on. It's for kids ages eight, to 19. And then from there, you're going to be able to schedule a call with us and we'll sit down and we'll discuss what is right for your family. If it makes sense for both sides, 
will offer your kids a spot at the school, and they'll be able to start that week. It is amazing. No more mask mandates. No more politics that you don't agree with. No more virtue signaling. This is a school based on freedom and entrepreneurship, specifically tailoring the problems that face expat and international families. And even if you guys are not expats yet, then you can still check this out. So go to expatschool.io. And that's it. Okay, long intro, but important stuff. Let's jump into today's interview. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is an American expat currently living in Spain with his wife, Allison, and their dog, Coda. And yes, I am told Coda has a passport too. He's the head of Remote at Doist, a leading remote-first company and a contributor for some of the top work remote outlets in the world, such as Remote How, Repeople, Future of Work, and others. After calling half a dozen countries home, Chase is passionate about making location independence the new norm and helping others step into a life beyond borders. Please welcome to the show, Chase Warrington. Chase, how are you? Hey, Mikel, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for having me. My pleasure. I am happy to have you here. Why don't you take a minute and kind of walk us through your backstory? Yeah, absolutely. As you said, I'm currently living here in Spain in beautiful Valencia. I landed here by accident, really, which we can get deeper into if you'd like. But I came here four years ago on a one-year visa thinking I would spend three months in Valencia. And ultimately, I've been here for four years now and have kind of found a home base that I really enjoy calling home. So prior to that, I was working kind of digital nomad style for a company called Duist, where I still am today, and bouncing around different countries, spending one to three to six to 12 months in different places, and ultimately just decided I wanted to put roots down in some form or another and have stayed here in Valencia. So I, I, I kind of pride myself on having a bit of balance, finally, that I, I've worked to discover and having the career that I wanted, but also having the sense of adventure and nomadism that gives me that sense of joy still. Amazing. Well, I want to get into your business and the work that you do and how you help people. But I guess from the beginning, like what was it that made you want to live overseas or travel? Like what was that spark? Where did that come from? I think a lot like you, Mikel, I, I had this in me at an early age. I, I kind of like to laugh and think about it. I was born to a pilot and a flight attendant. And by the time I was three, I believe I traveled to a, been on 30 something different planes and traveled a decent amount. Of course, I don't remember any of that, but it makes me think it was perhaps in my DNA. But funny enough, we didn't really travel a lot growing up. I, I, we, we stayed continental US. I never even left the US until I was 18 years old. But as a teenager, I just had this like, thirst to go see other cultures. And I would hang out. My school was very multicultural. We had a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds and I would play hacky sack with the Colombian kids and try to go learn how to, how to play soccer with the guys from other countries. And so it just kind of like was always something in me, but I didn't have the opportunity to go. And then as soon as I was 18, I, I hit the road and went down to New Zealand and Australia and got a taste of a, a foreign accent and new food. And, and all of a sudden I was like, I'm, I'm hooked. And so from there, it went on to, you know, study abroads and seeking out internships abroad and studying international business. And it just kind of was like one step after another, going deeper and deeper into needing to be surrounded by people from other backgrounds. I wanted to see people that look different and smell things that smelled different and taste things that tasted different. It just, it, it, it never got old for me. And actually the, the thirst just couldn't be quenched, I guess. Well, isn't that amazing that you can look back now and kind of connect the pieces, connect the dots of how this all happened? Because people ask me similar questions and I'm like, oh, I had 
no idea at the time what I was doing or how I was doing it. Now looking back, it's like, okay, everything makes sense. But you know, when you're going through it, it doesn't really make any sense whatsoever. Now, so here's my question. Do you think that for someone who wants to go out there and travel and be an expat or digital nomads or work remote, do you think they have to have a background like you? You know, do you think they have to have a parent who traveled extensively or was a pilot or something like that? Or do you think really like anyone can kind of do this stuff? Yeah. I, I think people find their, their passions in different ways throughout life. Right. And we look, we like, we're changing, we're constantly evolving. And I've met people, I've met expats here in Spain that, had zero desire to travel, never left their home country until they were in their forties, for instance. And they're, and now they're just enjoying this stage of life in, in a foreign place. So I absolutely think it can be learned and, and, and I'm still like, I'm still learning. And I look, there's this like spectrum of people that have had these different experiences throughout life. And I look at people like yourself, I've, I've, I listen to your show and I've heard some of your experiences and I'm like, wow, I want to do all those things one day. And then I have people talking to me who say, oh man, it's so cool. You live in Spain. I would love to go do that one day. And so it's, it's, there's always like some new adventure to, to go and learn and, and dive into and it never, it just doesn't get old. Well, and you know, you and I both started this at a very young age and we're able to connect the dots, but you know what? I bet you someone who started traveling at say they're 40 years old, as you mentioned, they start traveling today in a couple of years. I bet you they'll be able to look back and connect the dots of how they got there, the things in their life that led them to that situation and all they've been able to accomplish there. So that's kind of an interesting point that it doesn't really matter how old you are when you start. It'll all kind of make sense in the end. I, th I think that's true. And also something I really think that's interesting for me, and I know a lot of people who almost fell into this trap all as well, is I, I got diverted off that trail for a little while. So although I was very passionate about traveling, I sort of thought that it was a young person's game. I and mean, when I was in university, I thought for sure, this is like something I have to kind of get out of my system because in the future, it's not going to really be an option for me. I have to go into my career and I have to get started and I have to have kids and I have to, you know, and all those things mean like going back home in, in your mind. And and, and I started to venture down that path and, and was uncomfortable with it. And I know so many people who never then kind of divert back off that path. They just keep going, even if they didn't want to. And so I'm, I'm happy that I did. But I kind of, when I think about like my journey to this point, I kind of started from there, like, uh, like almost like the, the other stuff was youth. And then in my late twenties, I said, hold on, I've got to, I'm going down the wrong path. I'm, I, I'm missing that part of me that's so important and I've got to get back to that. And so that point for me kind of starts from there, which is which is sort of interesting to reflect on. Uh, see, I never fell for that. I mean, people have been telling me my entire life, oh, that's great now, do your traveling while you're young, but one day you're going to have to come back and, you know, get a house and, you know, get married and have kids. Well, joke's on you because I've been traveling tw nonstop for 21 years and met my wife overseas, got married overseas. Both my kids are born in different countries. And you know what? It works. So don't listen to everything that grown-ups tell you if you want to, <laughs> you know, go out there, enjoy your life and do anything you want. I mean, as long as it is in an honest and ethical manner, then go for it. I mean, you get to create this stuff. It's it's your choice. So so that doesn't stop, huh? People will keep on saying that, that well, get it out of your system now. Because I, I still, I'm the same. I'm 36 now. I still hear it. And I think like, how old do you think I am? You know, I'm, I don't get it anymore because I'm a father of two and stuff like that, you know, but um, I did get it up until I think I got married and had kids. I think that's when it kind of switched. So, I mean, I was mid thirties 
by the time that that started. Uh, it's quite a long time to be treated like a child. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, it's it's funny. People people do have sort of a a path laid out for you that they think everybody's going to follow. And when you divert from it, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting for people to try to swallow that pill. Like, you're going down a totally different route, but okay, let's see how long this lasts. Well, and that's an interesting point. So let's go down this piece a little bit because, I mean, the world is changing. The landscape of the job markets are changing, borders are changing, languages and the access to information for learning about new cultures, the internet and being able to live anywhere in the world. I mean, all of these things are changing so rapidly. Now, do you think that this mentality of people where you have to go home to to do all the things that you're supposed to do in your life, do you think that mentality is going to continue? Or do you think people are going to start switching and, and seeing things a little bit more like you and I do? I, I think it's changing rapidly. Obviously, the pandemic expedited things in a way that none of us could have foreseen. You have uh, you know tens of millions more people working online and, and transitioning to full-time working online, jobs that were not considered even remotely to be remote, no pun intended, are now fully remote jobs. Um, and so I think people you see you see people adapting to this very quickly. And what was not normal one, two years ago is suddenly very normal and and not going away. There's if there's anything that organizations and in individuals need to remember is that there there's no point in being nostalgic about it anymore. Like that's not going away. We are we are in this new world and and way of working so i think people will will adapt or have to adapt and and i think like there's some there's some pros and cons to that there will probably be some pains but i think overall people are going to come around to this idea on a much much more of a massive scale that okay i can i can take my life on the road with me there's there's new technologies emerging there's new services i know you're you've talked about creating schools for people that that want to live a more nomadic lifestyle or want to live abroad alternatives and, and so all these things that previously kind of held us down in a way, I think are there's enough critical mass there for solutions to be brought to market to solve those pain points for those people. Because a lot of us have it in us, this, this thirst to, to travel and see new countries. I talk to people every single day who are like, I can't wait to live like this. I'm so excited. But And now they feel liberated and able to do so. Well, I agree with exactly what you've said, like wholeheartedly and have been thinking this for a very long time. But do you think that there's any roadblocks? Do you think there's any things that are going to hold people back or hold society as a whole back from embracing remote work? I do. Well, what I think is going to happen is I think we're going to go through some cycles and evolutions here with with remote work. So one of the big ones, what the, the narrative around remote has sort of changed in in the last, obviously in the last two years. But even since everybody went from like hitting the panic button to, okay, we got to figure out remote work and how to make this work, right? So organizations across the world and individuals are going, I don't really have a choice. I just got to figure out how to make it. Everybody get, get a Zoom account and a Slack account and let's figure it out. And then what that narrative has changed to now is, oh, wait, this works. We can actually do this on a massive scale. People can have their flexibility and freedom and more time with family and less commute time. There's tons of benefits here. We figured out how to kind of do it as an organization, but now we need to transition that to how do we optimize this for the long term? And so there's a big gap there from, from where we are now with the, we're still kind of hitting the panic button, figuring out how to do it to optimizing and re, that's rewriting best practices. That's thinking about what tools we use. That's thinking, rethinking the way office space is used. There's so much that goes into it. So I think 
it'd be ridiculous to think that there's not going to be some heavy friction there. But I also think that the light at the end of the tunnel's bright enough to draw people down. And, and so I think that's, I think we're going to roll right over those speed bumps for the most part. And I, I don't think there's a reverse here. Well, and I asked this question a little bit because I was reading in the news recently that Google just acquired some of the most prime real estate in New York. I think they paid something like over a billion dollars for it. All of these big companies are scooping up real estate in prime locations. And I'm like, hmm, these these tech companies are buying real estate in depreciated locations and the rest of the world has gone remote like, what do they know that we don't know, you know? My business works very well remote. I mean, I have, I'm have i not Google, of course. I mean, I have a very small company. There's like a half a dozen of us that work for me. But it works for us now. I'm wondering if it will continue to work, if there's things that, you know, we should be aware of or things that we should put into our heads now to be prepared. I do spend a lot of time usually going to conferences, going to summits, going to masterminds, and there's like an energy of being face-to-face with someone. Now, you and I, we're on Zoom right now, and the technology works perfect, and it streams, and it's, you know, you can see me, and I can see you, and it's a real conversation. And we'll sit down, and we'll talk for maybe two hours. But that's a very different example than your office is just down the hallway, and I just come and knock on you because I have something that popped into my head that day. I mean, we set this call up probably almost a month ago, you know, to sit down today. So it's it's these weird dynamics and trying to understand, you know, the best way to go forwards, what we can change, what we can control, what we can't control, how do we moderate that, all of those types of things. So that's not really a question, but maybe a comment on it. It's a it's a wonderful comment because I mean, I don't claim to be Google either, you know. I, I they they probably do know <laughs> they definitely know a lot more than I know on a lot of levels. I do tend to think that there is no reverse to the remote trend. There just may be a tapering off in some ways, but I think I think more knowledge workers equals probably more of both, right? You're going to have some hybrid model set up where some people are in office, some people are remote. You're going to have some fully remote companies like the one that I work for, which is just remote first. Everybody just location agnostic, right? Like you work from wherever you want to work. And, and then you'll have some, you know, some that stick with the fully office remote model and 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 go that route. But I do tend to think like you you just have a growing population of people that are going to demand remote work, not see it as a perk anymore. When I, I don't like, I never mind sharing that, you know, when I, I was seeking location independence and remote work and I made so many sacrifices, like I kind of sacrificed the career for remote in a way and sacrificed the big paycheck for location independence and that was because it was a perk at the time, not like not not something you expected, like you would expect a 401k from a US based business, right? So that that was not the case with it. And now it is becoming the case. And companies that don't offer 401ks and companies that don't offer remote don't seem so attractive <laughs> to a lot of people. So it becomes like more of a necessity. Um, but I, I am I'm interested to see what that office space for for organizations like that, like how they use it. You know, does it does it become like uh, the the beautiful like hybrid setting where people can come and work from there? I have a friend that works at Google and he lo- he works remote, but he loves to go to the office like one two days a month, and and it's perfect for him. So it'd be interesting to see how that goes. 
Well, I'm thinking for my business, what I might be doing is holding like small retreats or something like this, maybe on a quarterly, maybe on a twice a year or something like that. And even if I have to pay for my staff to fly over or something like that, having something in person, I think there is going to be a lot said for that. I mean, I've been remote for many years now and I love remote. Absolutely. I mean, I have an office at home and I work from home and that allows me so much freedom and flexibility. But yeah, it's that marrying of the two. I think that will be interesting going forwards. And I think that the companies that have this type of a balance and understand the strengths on each, I think that they're really going to excel. I think that if you're you know, so indoctrinated to just one way, it's going to be challenging. I, I 100% agree, Mikel. It's and and actually one of the things I'm most excited about. My I'm just migrated into this new role called head of remote at Duist, and it's ha- about half of the role is about creating and cultivating the human element of remote work. So I'm very much so a people person. I enjoy being around humans but I work remote and how do I marry those two things together, both in terms of like, not just in terms of like bringing the team together. So we do a team retreat. We bring, we have about a hundred people in 35 different countries. We bring them all together in non COVID times to a co-located place once a year. And then we do what's called mini retreats where we bring people like the individual teams to a place about six months later. So that means every six months you're in a co-located place with your teammates, but not just from that standpoint, there's also ways to cultivate that, that, uh, that human element in virtual settings and asynchronous settings even, and also via like the way you offer your perks and benefits. We, we offer like, uh, for instance, my co I go to a co-working so I can be surrounded with other people and the company pays for that. We, we reimburse people to go travel if they want to go meet up with one of their teammates. Um, so there's ways companies can do this. They can still take all the benefits of remote and then give back the the sort of sacrifice, which is the, the human part. So how have you found remote workplaces? This is not something that I have a lot of experience with myself. Like I said, I always do the home office. I'm curious, like, what's your opinion? I've heard negatives. I've heard positives. I've heard there's a lot of drinking and partying afterwards. I don't know. What, what, what do you think? I think probably everything you've heard can be very true. And and for the most part, I was, I'm not a huge fan of co-working spaces. Like I found one here in Valencia that I absolutely love. I have a, I have a dedicated desk. This, these are some key differentiators. I have a de- dedicated desk. So my monitors are there. All I have pictures of my family and it's mine. You know, <laughs> I go there and it's like my place where I go, go to do work. So as opposed to some other places where, you know, you're, you, you walk in and you have to find a desk every day and you're packing and unpacking, and maybe you have to meet the new person next to you every day because there's, because that person's constantly changing or the people around you change. Sometimes it's loud. Sometimes it's not at the place that I've found that works for me. It's almost like a regular office. There's 40 people all at their dedicated desk, all doing their own their own individual things. We respect each other's space and that, and that works a lot. And then there is the social element. Yeah. We, we occasionally do a paella rooftop party or a sangria making class or something like that. Um, which especially when you first move somewhere and into a foreign country was, it was the, it was the source of my social life, actually. I mean, my wife and I moved here and we, we didn't know anybody and it, it became the source of our social life. And some of our best friends to this day, we met in the, uh, in the coworking. So it's, it worked out well in this case. But I've tried plenty that I did not like. (laughs) Yeah, so I think that you've hit some important points on there. 
having your own space for sure, I think would be a huge plus. I mean, I'm kind of the worst digital nomad. I can't just take a laptop and just like pull it out at the middle of an airport and just start working. I mean, I've got a second screen, I've got a proper keyboard and a mouse. I've got like a whole ton of a computer equipment. I like, I mean, right now where I'm recording this, I have three monitors in front of me. They're 24 inches. They're up on a stand. You know, I've got my podcasting gear. I have my expensive microphone. I mean, the whole kit and caboodle. Okay, yes, I live and I travel and I do all of these things, but I take a lot of it with me. But when I set up in an Airbnb or something like that, I mean, that's my desk for the next month. I'm, I'm there, you know? If I had to pack, unpack every day, oh my God, I'd shoot myself. Like I just, I, I tip my hat tips to anybody who can just work like on the drop of a hat. I need my environment in a certain fashion, I suppose. I'm no different. I, I, I'm a, I'm a creature of habit, which doesn't, uh, and routine, which doesn't jive well with the digital nomad lifestyle. And, uh, I, I thought I was one for a little while, but I kind of suffered through that. I mean, I just, I, you know, I thought, Oh, I love to travel. I have location independence. Cool. Marry those two together and hit the road. But I didn't have my, my routine. My, you know, I, I didn't have the setting for me to thrive in, in all aspects of life. And I think that's, really taken for granted sometimes when you see really cool Instagram pictures of laptops on beaches with cocktails next to them. You know, it's, it's, that works for some people, but for a lot of us that, that sort of have a regular career or something that you're trying to do most days, it's really hard to have some consistency. And so I, I just returned from six weeks of travel. My, we have a, a camper van and we went on a six week trip through the Alps and circled back down through Spain. And it was fantastic, but I was working for 70% of the time. And I just, I was reminded I'm a horrible digital nomad. I, <laughs> I, want, I want my office back. I want my studio back. So yeah, I understand that completely. I mean, I go back and forth between calling myself a digital nomad, non-digital nomad. If you guys have listened to this show, you probably say, I'm not a digital nomad. I'll never declare myself a digital nomad. And then a week, couple of weeks later, I'm like, well, I'm kind of a digital nomad. <laughs> I mean, that's why I use expat. That's why this is the expat money show. This is not the digital nomad money show. Yeah, because I just, I like the the comfort of having all of my stuff. And yes, I've done large trips in my life where, you know, I backpacked and hitchhiked for 18 months straight and go, 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 go. But, you know, at almost 40 years old, you know, things have slowed down a little bit, but I still travel a lot. Like I considered myself a digital nomad when I lived in Brazil. I was just there for six months. I was in four or five different Airbnbs over a six month period. But every time, even if I was there only for like three weeks or a month, I would set up a proper desk. I would work from there. I mean, I wasn't there like three days, three days, three days, you know, and nonstop moving. You know, and we got a big trip planned next year where we're going to spend, I think, three months in Eastern Europe. And I'm super excited about that, but I'm going to have to work the entire time. And that'll be digital nomad, but I'll still figure out a way to bring all my creature comforts with me. Good for you for like marrying it together, though. That's, I mean, like not a lot of people do both. It's kind of like one or the other. I, I, I like your style of going from kind of having a home base. And this is this is what I've sort of tried to work towards as well as like, I'm about eight months in one place here in Valencia and then scattered throughout the year, about four months in, in a handful of different places. And I, I generally like to be somewhere for at least a month, but you know, three weeks, five weeks, six weeks, somewhere in that range. And, uh, and so I, I like the way you've modeled it. I'm curious, what would be the shortest amount of time you would consider hitting the road, like family work, everything. 
Well, usually I get invited to speak internationally. So I've probably spoken, I don't know, eight, 10, 12 different countries around the world. So usually organizations will fly me out. And then if they're not paying for me to speak, they're only paying the travel, then sometimes I'll get them to fly my family out with me as well. So that's a nice perk. So maybe we'll go for, you know, two weeks to a country. I'll speak every day for a couple of days straight, you know, as a keynote. And then we'll tag a vacation onto that, you know, and then fly back. I mean, the other big thing is I have a home base. I mean, I have a nearly 500 meter square penthouse apartment in downtown Panama. It's two stories, 470 square feet. It's a huge place. It's fully furnished. I mean, this is my home. We are in the process of buying a couple of other houses around the world. So I'll use those as home bases as well. And that's kind of where we base a lot of our travel out of. Because you have to understand a family of five is kind of different than just traveling, you know, solo. So you have to think a little bit ahead with like kids and toys and bathing suits and all kinds of stuff that, you know, when I was in my earlier years, I just didn't need to think about. But I mean, I keep making it work. And, and this is kind of a, a circle back to our previous topic about, you know, do you have to grow up and go home to do these types of things? It's like, no, I'm just constantly modifying and staying up to date and being flexible and changing things as my life change. Because I will never stop traveling. COVID, war, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in the world right now. I'm going, I'm going to keep traveling. The, the big one that was funny for me was when I got a dog and people said, oh, you're going to stop. You're going to, you, now you'll have, you know, you'll definitely stop now. And He's a, he's a Siberian Husky. So he's not like a little lap dog. And it's just funny. Now he's, you mentioned this when we first started. I mean, he does have a pet passport and which is, which is super cute on one hand, but also really funny because he's crisscrossed the equator and the Atlantic multiple times. And he, I think he knows a couple of different languages, at least, you know, sit and stay and stuff. And so anyway, it was just really funny when I think back on that, like people said, oh, well, kids or dog, you're, you're done. You're, you're staying put. And they said, watch this. <laughs> And if you go back far enough, people would say that, okay, but to have a career, you're going to have to go back home. To have a proper job, to earn a proper income, you're going to have to go back and to your hometown or, or a major city. Well, who's laughing now? I <laughs> yeah. mean, like, look what you're doing. Look at what so many of our listeners are here are doing. I mean, there is options. You know, it's just a, a matter of being flexible. It is. It is. Yeah. And, and being intentional, I think as well, like, like people will say like, Oh, I wish I could do what you're doing, you know, or, or I, that looks like so much fun. Like I wish I could do that. And then just, if you center your attention for, for me, and I think for you, it was all about like flexibility, location independence. Like, like I put that at the center of everything. And I said, I will sacrifice some of the potpourri around that, but this is, this is what I truly want. And I'll figure out the rest. You know, my, when I, when I took a 50% pay cut, to, to have pure location independence. Finally, I, I said, I'll figure it out. You know, I had to adjust my spending and re, you know, redo my budget and all that, but it worked out and the, the career's back on track. Like I think these things take care of themselves. If you stay true to, to who you are, and it might sound like a little bit cliche, but I, I really feel that, uh, inside me it's, it's worked out that way for me. And so many people that I meet who are also living similar lives, like that's kind of the, the red thread that ties them all together. We'll just take a quick break. 
So in episode 137 of the podcast, I interviewed Marco Wutzer to talk about blockchain and the future of the internet. This was an amazing interview and I got so much great feedback. What a lot of people don't know is that Marco actually runs a paid newsletter where he talks about all of the projects that he's investing his own money in. He has a huge following of people and his track record is phenomenal. I want you guys to go and take a look. All you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash crypto. Follow along with the professionals. Don't try to do this your own. If you're already trading crypto, then get the best analysis and information out there. All you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash crypto and make sure to check out our interview with Marco Wutzer. Okay, that's it. Let's get back into today's interview. Well, how do you feel when someone tells you, you know, oh, you're so lucky to do this, Chase, you're so lucky. How do you feel when someone says that to you? It's not a great feeling because it's it's sort of like 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 what is the proper response to that you know and I just always think the same options are available to most people it's it would not be correct to say to everybody because there are some restrictions and you know some people are not afforded the same opportunities but in general the people in, that I would be having that conversation with generally had the same opportunities so if they truly wanted it they could they could have it too so I, I always I always struggle with that. When someone says that, I always wonder, like, I don't know what to say to you. <laughs> I don't know if you have a good answer, because I'm sure I know you get it as well. I get it all the time. And I used to get it even more when I still associated with people who don't really travel. Now, I think most of my my network is all location-independent digital nomads, expats, professionals who have their businesses or work in the offshore space. But, I mean, luck kind of discounts for me all the hard work that has gone into this, being purposeful, like you said. Like, I mean, I wasn't lucky. I mean, I was born with a learning disability and dropped out of school when I was 12 years old. Right. I mean, you guys call me lucky. Wow, thanks, that's amazing, you know? I worked my ass off to get to where I am, you know, 24 hours a day to do the things that I am do right now. Luck did not have a play a part in it. I didn't win the lottery, my family was not wealthy. You know, we didn't have any of that kind of stuff. So I think that people have to understand that really what it comes down to is sacrifice. I mean, if you make a sacrifice in your life to get the things that you want, well, then you're going to be propelled forwards. And if you decide that everything is out of your control and you need to wait for that golden lottery ticket, well, then probably nothing is ever going to happen for you. For me, personal responsibility is so massively important. I mean, I create my own destiny, my dreams, my family situation, my life, all of these things, I created it. I built it with my own two hands. And to say someone is lucky for that, I don't know. I don't know about that at all. I agree with you. You, you said it much better than I could, but I, I, I could not agree with you more. And I know in the community that you have around the show, I would imagine there's a lot of people that feel the same because it is the expat money show. There's people in this network and in your community that have a thirst for or a knowledge of the business environment, wealth, the, the things that it might take to actually create a quote unquote real life while also incorporating the, the expat, digital nomad, life abroad sort of thing. And so they know that it takes some effort, it takes some sacrifice, it takes some investment and learning. And, you know, I, I joke like just the simplest thing of renewing my visa here in Spain is something that most people probably don't want to do. It's not a lot of fun. It's kind of a pain, but like it's, it's what serves the life that the lifestyle that I want to live. So I'm willing to go through with it and make that sacrifice. It can be expensive, time consuming. It can feel like you're beating your head against a wall, but 
these are the things you you have to do to to live this life and as you said quote unquote get lucky yeah well i think that bureaucratic work is no fun i mean i do a ton of work in immigration stuff and i hate working with governments but i mean I want to travel, like we said. I want to have multiple passports and you know have the opportunity to live and work in different places. So it's like, I mean, you either play the game or you don't play the game. But I mean, sitting around and complaining about it's not going to help anybody. So, but Spain, I have heard that Spain immigration, Spain bureaucrat, and the tax situation there is pretty rough, pretty arduous. It, it is, yeah, it is. It's it's like comically bad sometimes. And I've done, and I've done the visa process in in other places, but it's just. It's the the thing that unites all the agencies is is that the information's just always out of date, and so there's just nothing is ever consistent. Offices get closed and moved, and you know there's just and and I don't think that's unique to Spain necessarily. It's probably true in a lot of places, but it's there, there's a lot of there's a big expat community here, and it's it's a common joke that in the in the mail system. Well, let's talk about Spain a little bit because I've been to Spain, I've traveled through there, I've ate the food. I met the people. I had a great, great experience. What's it like living as an expat there? I will also give a little bit of context. So I I came to Spain after traveling through a couple times as well and had explored a lot of it, particularly the South. And I loved the country, but I, I hadn't found my place yet in the country. I, I really liked being down in Andalusia in the South and the in the pure culture. I mean, that is like the space. It's like being, it's like if you're in the US and you go to Texas, you're like, okay, I, I, that's what I envisioned when I thought of Texas. That's that's Andalusia and in, in, in Spain. So I'd spent a lot of time down there. I really loved it. it. It was fun. It was like great places to visit, but I couldn't find the place where I would want to live. And, and my wife and I were looking for a place to come. We wanted to come to Europe and we were hoping to just come spend a year in Europe and not have to bounce in and out of the Schengen. So we found this visa that said, Spain said, you can come, you can live in, in Spain for one year. And it seemed like it would all work out. So we said, okay, we'll go. We asked a couple Spanish friends, where do you guys think we should live? And we kept hearing Valencia, but we had not been to Valencia and we didn't really know what to expect from Valencia. But when we were in the consulate, they said, Hey, you have to decide right now you're getting your visa, but tell us where you're living. So we picked Valencia kind of on a whim, having never been here. And we thought we would come spend three months here and then move on to a couple other places. But what I came to really find out, we got to Valencia and we just felt right at home, like immediately. Big enough city to kind of have everything. It's about a million people. So a mid-tier US city that has, feels like it has everything, but at the same time, super bikeable, bike lanes all throughout. It's one of the most bikeable cities in, in Europe. So you don't need a car, just bike through the whole city, big, beautiful park right on the Mediterranean big international airport to fly all over Europe for super cheap. And then it's also not, it doesn't have the prices of Madrid or Barcelona. So it felt like a really nice mix for us. And so I, I say all that because one thing about Spain that I think is very unique is that it's very, very regionalized. They have either four or five, I can't remember four, I think it's five individual official languages. They have two different provinces, two different like states, essentially, that want to segregate from, from the country as a whole. It's very unique depending on where you live. And it, it borders on three oceans, three seas at least. There's the Pyrenees mountains and the Mediterranean beaches. So it's just so diverse in a relatively small place that it's like, you can I can drive a couple hours in one direction and feel like I'm in a totally different country. And so that for me is like one of the things that I really love about living here is that 
I legitimately feel like I'm living in a couple different places and, and Valencia feels like such a different place than, than Madrid or Andalusia or Galicia or whatever part of the country you want to go to. So that's, that's kind of like the, the glue that keeps holding me here, I guess. Amazing. And so most of your friends that you've met there, they're Spanish, they're expats, they're digital nomads, foreigners, locals. What's the, what's the mix there? I would say about 75% Spanish and 25% expat. And most of those expats coming from other European countries. Another, there's a lot of Dutch here in Valencia in particular. There's like 23 flights a day between Valencia and, and the Netherlands. So you have a lot of Dutch here. And there's not a ton of Americans in Valencia. There's not a ton of... We, we have some Australian friends, some British friends as well. But yeah, it's a it's it's got a very local feel. Like when you you, you should speak Spanish here, for instance. Like it's not one of the cities where just speaking on Valencia in particular, it's not one of the cities where if you don't speak any Spanish, you're going to be 100% comfortable. You should, you should be able to speak some Spanish. You'll get by without it, but, but it, it feels important to have Spanish. That's not the case in a lot of European major cities. You know, you can walk in and speak English just fine. So, but it, it, there, there is an expat community, but I'm not super tapped into it necessarily, but it's, it's there for people that crave it. And your language ability, did you speak Spanish before you arrived? Did you learn while you're there? Are you still... English only? What's the language situation like? I, I speak conversationally in Spanish. I'm not fluent. I've, I struggle with some of the technicalities of like switching to subjunctive and, uh, and back and forth between different tenses. But I have the, the way I phrase it is I have Spanish friends that don't speak English and we have very deep conversations and true friendships in Spanish. So I, I feel totally comfortable in Spanish. But also, like, for instance, I got offered to do an interview today in Spanish, very like kind of professional work-based. And I didn't feel hundred percent comfortable doing that. And so did you say yes, or you said no, you, you did it and felt uncomfortable. Or you said no and felt comfortable. <laughs> I said, no, gracias. <laughs> uh, we, we switched to English. The guy spoke like fluent English and I was like, yeah, this is going to be a lot better experience for everyone in, in English. So yeah, I'm, I'm in that realm. And I, I didn't speak much before I came here. I digital nomaded through Latin America and, um, and tried to pick up some there, particularly in Ecuador, but the difference between Spanish and Ecuador and Spanish and Spain is like Scottish and Texan, you know, it's just totally two, two different opposite ends of the spectrum. So I could, I could count, do some pleasantries, say hello, things like that. But I, I settled into it when I got here. Nice one. Well, I think the language is really important, especially if you're going to live there for four years. I mean, yeah. You, yeah. you kind of have to learn the language. I mean, people keep telling me, ah, oh, it's okay. Google Translate, Google Translate works everywhere. And I'm like, yes, technically you might be able to, you know, get yourself understood or, or communicate with someone. But what a barrier to have to work through using technology at all times. I mean, there's so much personality and heart that comes through in a language where you're really not going to get that by just using your phone as a translation app. Yeah, absolutely not. How how do you feel? Uh, I know your your Spanish is is pretty good, but how how about like in particular in Panama? Like, do you do you feel? Because I, I know there's it's it's got the close ties with America. A lot of a business from the U.S. is done there. Do you feel is it is it necessary to to speak Spanish, or do you feel like like it's like a, a nice bonus that you that you learned it? I think that it's very easy to survive here without speaking any Spanish whatsoever, but 
probably you would guess, I'm not interested in just surviving. I mean, I at all times am looking to thrive. So I've worked very hard on my Spanish over the last couple of years. I mean, a lot of private tutors, a lot of courses. You know, if you guys have listened to the show for any length of time, check out Ollie Richards' course. If you guys go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language, you're going to be able to find those programs. I've used them. My, my spouse has been using them. My mother's used them. We've all had really great luck with it. So yeah, I think that in Panama, you can get by with English only and you'll get surprised at times when people do speak English. Sometimes you'll be in an Uber or something like that. I'll be chatting away with my wife in English and then all of a sudden, you know, the guy will ask a question for directions and he turns around and speaks perfect English. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I should have been a little bit more careful. You know, was I thinking, was I talking about something private? So you can't assume that people don't speak English here, but even a little bit of Spanish will go a long way. It's good to have and, you know, you can pick it up as you go. But I think that what happens a lot of times is someone moves to a new country, finds their expat bubble and then stays within that. And then maybe they might be able to say, you know, they want, you know, agua con gas or something and, you know, pollo and then this is it. You know, like they can order their food. But, you know, to have a real conversation or to understand, you know, full sentences, they're really going to struggle on that. I mean, at this point in my Spanish, I can sit down with a group of Panamanian friends and, you know, go out for drinks and have dinner and converse completely in Spanish, tell jokes and laugh and things. All right, if I go to the bank and we're talking about, you know, business accounting information or large wire transfers and, you know, uh, you know business Spanish, okay, I might be appreciative if the banker I'm working with works in English or, you know, um, going through immigration work. I mean, okay, I work with someone locally who helps do the immigration work for my company for people wanting to relocate to Panama. I mean, those people are bilingual. Even when I go through the process, I want to make sure I know exactly what's being said because there's repercussions if you get it wrong. You know, if you're out having beers and eating chicken, like my example, I mean, it's like, well, you, you got it wrong. Big deal. You laugh and you move on. You, got, you messed up the joke. The punchline was off, whatever. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're not going to get like expelled from the country or something, or, you know, your, your half a million dollar wire transfer to buy a place is not going to go to the wrong account. Like, I mean, it's an example, but I mean, you want to make sure this stuff is real, like it's true and you got it correct. So, so that's my perspective on Spanish in Panama, I suppose. You, you touched on something there that I think is like really important for people considering a move abroad. And I would certainly say so for Spain is, is hiring a professional, like out, like a, a big fan of like just outsourcing your weaknesses. You know, what, what are you not great at? What's going to soak up a lot of your energy that you can pay, pay somebody else to do. And that that's a solid investment, I think. And I know you're of a similar mindset in that way. And this, and for anybody listening that has an interest in Spain, I would 100% say that that is worth every penny. It's relatively cheap. And, and also, you know, like I, I just went through my third visa entry process and I got, I thought we could do it on our own this time because we've been through it twice and we got six months into it. 80% of the way there couldn't get past the, some red tape eventually had to hire somebody anyway. So it's just, it's just worth it to, there, there's several groups. And if, if anybody wants to reach out to me, if they're interested in Spain, I can point you in the right direction with a couple throughout Spain. Yeah, working with local representation is always a big bonus, especially when it's in a foreign language that you don't fully understand. So on the note, though, of immigration, what visa are you on? I mean, we know about the Spanish golden visa, but what type of visa would you have to apply for three times? Yeah, so um, I did I did not use the golden visa. I did not have half a million euros in my bank account, so that was not an option to me, though if you do have a half a million euros in the bank account, that is a great way to go, probably the easiest. But 
in my case, I'm on, <laughs> I'm on what I guess I've never thought about this, but it's on the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, as far as that goes, it's called the non-lucrative visa, which means like make no money visa. <laughs> and oh, essentially wow. what it's designed Sounds really for, attractive. <laughs> yes. The expat money show, people are going to love this. So no, what, it, what it's essentially designed for originally years and years ago was designed for pensioners and retirees. So if you had a fixed income coming from another country, you could come and live here and, and stay and just renew the visa as long as you're basically you're investing money in the economy and you're not taking a job, you're you're not allowed to work. That's the big kicker with this one. But if you're working remotely from, uh, you know, your income's coming from another country, then obviously it applies to you too. So you just have to prove a couple things like fixed income, showing bank records of of continuous deposits and access to funds if needed, health insurance that you're not crazy, that you're not a criminal yada, yada, yada. And you're allowed to come to to Spain. The kicker though, is that they are introducing a digital nomad visa as we speak, which is designed for knowledge workers and remote workers. The the non-lucrative obviously was not, it was just old and happened to apply to new the new way of working, but they're trying to introduce a new digital nomad visa, which is great in a way because it's designed for the actual use case that someone like myself is in. And a lot of people here, most, I know tons of people on the non-lucrative here in, in Spain that are working remotely like I am. But so the, everybody was really excited when he said, okay, we're going to have an actual visa for us now, but they've done it. They, they've not gone about it in the, in the right way. A lot of people think they're trying to basically milk remote workers for for money very quickly rather than seeing it as like hey let's get more people here and let them spend their money so it's it's a work in progress but but that, so so I say all that to say if you're considering following in my lead that could change very very soon okay and so with the non lucrative work visa you actually have a job where you work for a company and I know you're very passionate about the company you work for and things like that but for someone who has their own company can they pay themselves a salary and work for the company that they own and still qualify for something like this? Or does it have to be, you know, where you're working for a company where you don't have a controlling interest on? No, as, as you said, yeah, freelance. The, most of the people I know are actually freelancers or self-employed. What would be like a 1099 in the US? They, that's what they are here. Um, and in fact, I, I am I am as well. Like I'm, I'm self-employed and my company hires me on a full-time basis, but I'm my own entity. Um, as are my other colleagues all around the world. So, Well, that's an amazing way to do it. And one that I started doing with my staff, oh, years ago now. I mean, when I try to explain it to someone, it's, it's kind of like this. And, and I guess this is kind of my briefing when I start working with someone else. Listen, I am not your boss. I'm actually your client. I, I, you don't work for me. I work for you. Like, this is a completely different relationship. You might have only one client, and that client is me, and all of your time is going to be dedicated on this, but I don't tell you what to do. Your job is to actually make me happy and to add value. So if I pay you $50,000 a year, you're actually supposed to make me $150,000 a year. And having this shift in the mindset of people that you work with is really, really good because they're constantly trying to make sure that they don't lose their one and only client. They're going to be pretty crummy business people if they get one client and they lose that client, you know? So I think that this is a good way to do it. And it's it's interesting, even with a company like yours, where there's 100 people, they're actually using this similar type of uh, mindset. I think you get a lot more dedication, a lot more personal responsibility. People will see their experience I don't know how to say, like, 
I think they'll be more thankful for their experience opposed to looking at it like, wow, their boss is making all this money and, you know, just uh, milking my my hard work and things like that. It's like, no, actually, they're your client. You went out and got them. So be thankful for them. Yeah, it makes them like stakeholders in the whole thing, right? Like they're like they're their own. They're actually the business and, and you're a customer and they just want to make you happy. And, uh, and so that they can keep their business thriving and it, it kind of turns the whole thing upside down. And, and I, I personally like the approach a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would think that this is going to catch on even more and it fits so perfectly in with the remote work. Now, earlier you were talking about 401ks and things like this. I mean, I don't provide 401ks for my employees. I don't know if I should be saying this live online, but I mean, you know, I pay my people very well, and it's their responsibility to go out and pay their appropriate taxes, to you know contribute to whatever they need to contribute to, and that's theirs. They run their own business, and I am their client. Yeah, makes things a lot easier as a business owner. <laughs> I'll tell you that. It does. It does. And, and this is a this is you know I talked about that like evolution of remote work and and sort of the one of the reasons that a position like mine you know head of remote was not a director of remote remote work advocate whatever there's a bunch of them out there this didn't exist that very long ago you know and and it's one of these next it's one of the the reasons that it does exist is to kind of take this next step in the evolution of how to make remote work function for teams so for us for instance like providing 401ks. That sounds great for our American employees, but what about the ones that live in China or the ones that live in Italy? Or they're like, why do I need a 401k? That, that does nothing for me. Or how do you get enough critical mass in one country to provide uh, health insurance plans for everybody? And what about the ones who say, I pay 58% taxes, so I have health insurance covered. I don't need that. Um, so these are all new, relatively new problems um, that, you know, if you're not a mega corporation with, with in an enterprise level, if you've got a dozen employees or a hundred employees or 500 employees, you probably have some of these pain points and you're now trying to figure out how to solve them and still gain access to all the talent in the world and let people work from where they want to work from. There are real problems. These are those friction points that are, you know, kind of going to be the things that I'm trying to help solve um, for our organization and, and hopefully for others. So yeah, it's, I mean, for me, it's a lot of fun. It's like that, that's the challenge and that that's the exciting part. If someone's listening to this today and they're facing some of these problems, what are the things that you've had to overcome? What could someone learn based off of your experiences? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a lot to to digest because there, there's the the very interesting thing is that there's all because there's this critical mass of companies that have gone remote. Now there's following that there is a supply of products being and services being delivered to solve those pain points. So before there just weren't enough remote first companies to really worry about how do you, how do you hire a hundred different people in 35 different countries? Like really, how do you go about doing that? Because there's employment contracts and different, in certain places you have to, what, what happens if someone slips and falls at home in, in Uzbekistan, you know, what are the laws like there? So you have to like consider these things, but there wasn't enough critical mass for people to really be concerned with it. And now there is. Um, and so people are developing products and services and and coming up with ways to to solve these things. So one of them is the title of the companies or the the area that they work in is called employer of record and I know I'm sure you're familiar with that but basically these companies that are emerging to help other companies hire all around the world and do and go through all the logistics and steps that they need to do it legally in each country. And then on top of that, perhaps provide a medical insurance, health insurance, 401ks, investment plans, 
childcare, things that would be normal to somebody in their individual country. So this is just like one of the things that are, that is emerging and that somebody could look into to say, how do I solve those needs? An employer of record would be one of those. Okay. I've worked with programs like Upwork for years and years and years and found a lot of my people and I've found some really fantastic people and I've found some really terrible people over the years working on there. It's can, been kind of uh, throwing a, a dart at a dartboard kind of thing and you know, maybe you get lucky, <laughs> maybe you don't. I don't know. Any tips on working with remote workers on, you know, to make sure you're getting a bullseye more often than not? Yeah. I mean, I, I think so much of it starts with when you're, when you're hiring remote workers, you're looking, you need to be looking for a couple things. One of them is excellent written communication. And that might seem very obvious, but really imagine trying to work with someone that you're going to communicate with 99% of the time. Maybe, maybe you do an interview with them face-to-face over Zoom and you think, oh, this is great. Like we really get along well, but how, how much have you dissected their written communication? Because that's how you're going to do 99% of your, your communication. And I've interviewed some amazing people. We've, I've looked at incredible rec, uh, resumes and CVs and cover letters. And then w- when you get into actually working together, you go, I cannot read this writing for every single day for the rest for the rest of this year it's too all over the place so you're looking for people that are that are succinct but thorough that that know how to get a point across in as few words as possible who are go-getters and and ones that can you know set their own schedule manage their own expectations they don't need to be handed a lot of tasks they need to be handed objectives and deliverables and then trusted to to run with them and so I think a great way to test this ahead of time is to do a test project. It's something that has helped me move from hiring lots of bad freelancers to, to, to lots of good ones is offering a test project, offering to, to pay for it as well. And, and seeing how that goes before, before moving forward. So we'll, we'll often do like a, a blanket test project across three or four people that should take between four to six to eight hours of work and, and then, and then see how that work comes back. And that's, that's been very successful well worth the investment. So is that like a probation period where they, you'd actually bring them on, explain everything, and then they would do the project. And then if they did well, you keep them or it's like, this is part of your, I don't know how to say like, this is a test, you know, like a written exam, all this kind of thing. It's an interview. It's, it's part of the interview process. So basically what we do, and, and so I've seen as a trend across a lot of remote first organizations is that this has become part of the hiring process. It wasn't for us for a long time. We used to go kind of a more traditional route of cover letter, CV, interview one, interview two, offer kind of thing. And we inserted the test project early on um, and, and we're not alone in doing that. And it's paid so many dividends. And so you, you, don't, you don't do it at the first stage because you'd end up spending a lot of money um, on hundreds of candidates perhaps. But in our case, you know, you filtered through and gotten through one interview and we think, okay, we've got something here. Then we want to see how the the work performs and and you know the time frame that they can get it done in and things like that. But we're a very asynchronous first organization, so we don't expect a lot of quick communication. We're more about like, hey, you have this deliverable we need by the end of next week. Let me know if you have any questions. Otherwise, I'll expect it in a week, and and we don't need to chit chat about it a lot in between. Um, and so we we approach the the test project the same way. Okay, so give me an example of what a test project, a good test project would be, and give me an example of one which would be a lousy test project. Because I'm already thinking like, hmm, this might be a good idea for my business. I might snake this. So we we hired an amazing 
community manager to manage all our social accounts, uh, social media and, and beta community and things like that. And we basically just simply asked somebody to, we asked the candidates that were at this stage to create a content calendar for the next month. So they could, they could take that and run with it just as if, as if I was actually their boss. And I said, Hey, I need a content calendar for next month. And it was very quick and easy to see which ones would shine and which ones wouldn't. The one that just blew us out of the water, actually created all these images, gone above and beyond, created images, written out all the captions, researched hashtags, and and just went and created this beautiful doc that she shared with us and said, "There's that's our person. Like, let's expedite the rest of this. We've, we've already seen what can what we can get from her. So doing something that's very practical, but also should take like no more than half a day to, to one day of real work is, is kind of preferable. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. Because I think if, you know, they come back a week later and it's like, here, I put 30 hours into this. It's like, Ooh, you know, it might be good work, but you know, <laughs> if you can't accomplish these types of things and within a deadline or, you know, in you're paying on, I don't know how you guys pay, if it's on salary, if it's on hourly or project task base, but I mean, and the things could end up costing you five times as much or be five times as slow. So giving that type of a a window, you know, this should take you between four and six hours. Here it is. Very important. Talk to you tomorrow. Yeah. Very important. Yeah. You have to set that expectation. And we we always say like, you could lie to us. You could say, you know, it took you, say it took you 30 hours, but you, we said it should take four to six. If it took you 30 hours, you're not going to, it's not going to work out well in the end. So like, don't, don't, don't save yourself the, the headache and, and just be honest with us. I'm sure that doesn't, that doesn't always work out exactly like that, but generally we, we have a pretty incredible, uh, 97% retention rate. So when we get the right people in, we, we don't tend to lose them very, very easily. So we, I think that it's the hiring process has worked out. Amazing. Amazing. So, okay. So next I'm kind of curious about technology. I mean, we mentioned before we're talking on Zoom, you know, you mentioned Skype earlier. Is there any technology out there that people should be taking advantage of or technology that you think is maybe like up and coming something in the future that will become a norm or something that's going to shortcut the process when you're working with people around the world for your business? Uh, there, there is, and I'm, there's some of me that's going to be biased in this. So I'm going to call that out completely to try to mask any tendency towards just plugging my own, our company's own products, because it's not just about our products. It's more about a way in which remote teams are communicating. And I used this word earlier, asynchronous communication, but this is really like the cornerstone of how most remote and hybrid teams, the, the location agnostic teams function is they're moving from a synchronous situation where we're all in the same place. We're talking face to face, we're chat, even instant chat, you know, where you expect an instant response. That's synchronous communication, the, the antithesis of asynchronous communication. So tools that lend themselves to asynchronous communication are the next step. And that's, and, and technically any tool other than being face to face could probably be asynchronous. You and I could chat back and forth in Zoom if we really needed to, or in Google Hangouts or Google Meet or something. There's the old AIM, you know, you can, you can use that asynchronously and not expect an immediate response, but there's tools that lend themselves to that better. And this is emerging, not just in like the written form, but also in like, in ways like video, for instance, products like uh, Loom, Cloud App. There's a new tool out that I love called Yak that does voice asynchronous communication. So you're basically sending voice notes back and forth, but it also transcribes them. So you can actually have a searchable history. So imagine if you have a team of a hundred spread across the world and you're sending voice notes back and forth, 
that could get a little messy, but with transcription and really good transcription, you can actually search for any comment that's been made. So these are all evolving and the thing that ties them together is that they're asynchronous in nature. Our, our company built a product called Twist, which is a team communication tool for remote teams in particular. We actually built it for ourselves because we were annoyed by Slack. We were running on Slack and we were like, ah, this is great for like chit chat and writing back and forth and instant messaging. But for a team that's, you know, when I wake up in the morning and I've got 700 Slack messages because my team in Asia has been working all night, that's not a great way to start my day. And, and we're also a productivity company. So we're real big pro productivity nerds and like, this isn't, we're losing like two hours a day each, multiply this out. This is bad business. So we built Twist with asynchronous communication in mind and and remote teams in mind. And that's that's what we've been running off of. And now we sell it to other remote teams. And, and so again, the core of it is like, it's just all, everything centered around asynchronous communication. And, and I'm seeing that evolve with other tools as well. Well, for me, for my company, it was emails. We had email going back and forth, like, hundreds of emails of threads. And then we moved over to Telegram. And now I have different Telegram threads for everything. And that's working at the moment. But I'm kind of wondering, you know, as my company grows and moves to the next stage and we start, you know, we're hiring more and more people, it's like, is are we going to outgrow the these types of things that we already have? Is there technology out there that's going to give us an advantage? advantage? I mean, it's really interesting to see. And as you said earlier in the program, I mean... COVID has really sped up a lot of these types of things because maybe it was just a small subsection of the entrepreneurial space who was using this. Now it's like everybody needs to know how to use these things. So it's like jumped us ahead maybe six, seven, ten years. So it is really interesting to see about the different ways that people handle problems. It's totally fascinating. And you hit the nail on the head. I think that most estimates show about 10, it expedited things by about 10 years, which is, in, which is mind blowing. I mean, 10, 10 years, like, like when did the iPhone come out? You know, like imagine the world without the iPhone, there's, there's just technology just moved at such a rapid pace in a time where things are already moving at a rapid pace. It's, it really is pretty incredible whether you're like into that world or not. It's just when you kind of step back and look at it, you go, wow, things really moved quickly here and entire industries are completely flipped upside down and new products and services emerging. And it's, it's very fascinating. Brilliant. Chase, I love it. Amazing conversation. I love today. Amazing. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to follow along, where can we send them? Yeah, please follow along on LinkedIn is the best place to connect with me professionally. Uh, again, it's Chase Warrington. I'm, I'm not a great social citizen uh, otherwise in my personal life, but I do try to share a bit on my Instagram at DC Warrington uh, and on Twitter as well. I'm, I'm, I'm a rekindled Twitter user as of recently. I'm trying to, trying to get back out there a little bit and learn from others. So that's the best place to find me. And I'm always happy to talk any of the things that we discussed here today, whether it be Spain or life abroad or remote work, I'm always in. Brilliant. I love it. Thanks, Chase. And I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Mikhail. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed the interview. I certainly had a ton of fun recording it for you. Now, if you are listening to the podcast and you're hearing this message, then what I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash YouTube, and you can actually check out the video of the interview that you just listened to. We're now putting out all of our interviews on YouTube. This is brand new for us. We just started a few weeks ago. 
we're going to be doing, hopefully, all of our interviews going forwards on YouTube. But more than that, we're going to be creating original content on YouTube. So as I go out there and travel the world, as I build my business and visit foreign real estate and foreign gold vaults and stock markets and different projects around the world, I'm going to do my best to film everything and create original content, which will only be found on YouTube. So if you guys want to show your support, go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash YouTube. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Very important. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and check out all the original content that we have going on there. It's completely free and we really appreciate your support. That's it. Have an amazing week. I will see you next Wednesday on the podcast. We got an awesome interview coming up and I hope you enjoy. Okay. See you next week. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.